Welcome everybody today to our podcast. We're going to be talking about fraud with two of the industry experts on this particular topic. And we'd like to introduce to you one of our guests today, Fred Wharton, who is the president and founder of North American Training Group and the International Fraud Training Group which is an international provider of insurance fraud and investigation training and consulting. Brett also is an international recognized speaker who has conducted lectures and training seminars throughout the insurance industry and spoken in all 50 states and probably in many different countries. And Fred, it's great to have you with us today. Yep, George, thank you for having me. That is absolutely a pleasure. And our next guest today, I'm excited to have on board is Dr. Michael Skiba. And Mike goes by the name of Dr. Fraud. That is correct. Dr. Fraud. If you've heard of that name before, he's live with us today, believe it or not. And Mike is an international consultant and expert on financial crime and has been referred to as one of the top crime fighters in the world. He worked in the fraud industry for 22 years in the private sector and for the last six years has been an international consultant, trainer, and speaker on fraud and is currently consulting with Inform as Vice President of International Counterfraud Strategies. And Mike, it's great to have you with us today. Yeah, George, great to be here. Looking forward to uh, dialoguing with uh, yourself and uh, Fred about uh, about this uh, great topic. Yeah, and I tell you guys, it's interesting. I was just picked up the copy of the latest edition of IA Magazine, and there was an article on fraud. And one of the statements in that article was that the property and casualty fraud accounts for about $30 billion in theft each year. That came from the Insurance Information Institute. And then it said that 10% of all claims are fraudulent. That is just amazing to think about that we have that much fraud. And I'm sure both of you gentlemen have experienced this throughout your career and seeing this. So what are some of the things that agents can look for for fraudulent claims? Well, you know, George, you know, just speaking of those numbers, those numbers are what we can identify or what the insurance companies can identify during times like we are now when there's an economic depression, this whole COVID pandemic, we see fraud rise at substantial numbers. And so those numbers are high, but we in the industry always believe they're a bit higher and quite a bit higher. But getting back on your question, I just wanted to hit on that topic. What can agents do to, obviously, they're the front line in the process of insurance. So they're the ones that are going to be potentially coming in contact with groups of fraudsters. Individuals may be coming into their agencies looking for particular types of insurance, particular companies. Maybe they're aware of companies that are very weak with fraud initiatives. So these fraudsters tend to target certain insurance companies that really, you know, by law, they're supposed to fight fraud, but a lot of them, you know, it's overwhelming and they don't have strong fraud units. So these fraudsters find out who's who, what companies are really strong in fighting fraud. But first and foremost, you know, we always say fraud is to know your customer, be comfortable with your customers, referrals from other good customers and so forth. But we all tend to believe that all of our clients are very good people and outstanding citizens as, you know, 99% of them most likely are. Problems we have to worry about and that the agents have to worry about is really getting to know what's going on around their community. And, And I say that because provider fraud is probably larger than having insured defraud your company or defraud your agent. Providers such as the auto body repair shops, your massage chiropractic clinics, your mitigation for flood damage, a lot of these, along with contractors, they're out there to really take advantage of an insurance policy. And 
you know, getting to know the body shop that, you know, you constantly see your insureds are repairing their vehicles at the same repair shop. And this repair shop is 10, 20, 30 times more costly than repair shop B. And there's reasons for that because there's a lot of fraud in that, you know, repair industry. So, you know, we really like to get to know what's going on around us. That's the number one goal. Know your clients and know your surroundings. Right. And Fred, I think from that particular aspect of it is that it's not just necessarily the client that's coming in and take out the insurance that's going to be committing fraud. It could be one of the other entities like the body shop or the, or the doctor's office or whatever else that may be out there that we really have to keep an eye on and listen to what the prices are and are they out of the norm? Are they adding extra services in there? And I believe that you had mentioned one before where they were talking about a particular, I don't know if it was a chiropractor or a different doctor that was adding an additional service. And it was a very small as far as price-wise, but over the period of time that built up. Yeah, absolutely. A, a chiropractor was, was billing for a $10 ice pack on every single patient that he saw. And when we went in there as investigators for the insurance company, we noted there was no freezer. And <laughs> immediately his response was, oh, that must be a billing error. That must have been a mistake. Well, the mistake turned into probably six or 7,000 mistakes wow. with multiple insurance companies. So it wasn't just a one time. And like I said, they know where to throw a little extra on. And of course, you know, that's hard to find. And a lot of people say, yeah, you know, $5, $10 here. But, you know, when we're talking 4 to $5 million in a $10 charge over a few years, it definitely affects the, the ratios here. Right. And that adds up over the long term. By anything else you would like to add to what agents could look for regarding fraud? You know, I think, yeah, I mean, Fred hit on a lot of the great topics. And I think, you know, firstly, we do think that 10% is conservative. You know, I mean, I, in the research I do academically, I mean, I've seen 15, 25% in certain lines of business. So just, just to get the message out that it is absolutely there. And I think one of the things, you know, we are very, we try to be agile in the fraud world, right? We try to change our tactics with the MOs. There's a lot of new ones coming out, you know, especially with technology platforms and the way the fraudsters are using technology. But what we see is a lot of it comes down to, you know, the same type of trends and patterns. You know, for example, claim on a new policy that has been around for such a long time, but it always is one of the biggest indicators. You know, anytime a new policy happens, the chances of a claim happening on that is somewhat slim. So, you know, a new policy, any changes in a policy, a change in a coverage request, and then a claim soon thereafter. Insured or claimant that knows the language coming to the agent, you know, knows all that lingo that we might maybe only know from the inside uh, perspective. And priors, insured or claimants that have priors that are coming in. And, you know, we understand too, the agents, they're in their business to make a profit. You know, we understand that that's at the end of the day what an insurance company and a, an agent is looking to do. But there is that fine line between writing. We know from our end, what Fred and I see, when you get someone on the book that is a bad apple, if you will, damn damage they cause is 10 times more than what that premium is in just investigation and litigation and cost. So so really the agents have a pivotal role because they're the first lines of defense and just getting the, the business and seeing those flags up front. And I agree. And I think that a lot of agents that are listening today, you do have that kind of sense when you're talking to somebody that something may not be exactly correct. And maybe they know a little bit more than the average person about insurance or they're asking about particular coverages or they're calling to say, hey, I just want to make sure 
before something happens that then I've got this covered. And then the next thing you know, you've got a claim for that particular item they called about because they were verifying that they had the coverage so they could turn it in. So we do have to be on the lookout for those. And, and I think, Mike, you mentioned one thing that I really want to tag into a little bit just for a second. Over the past few years, we've seen a huge rise in these insure tech companies uh, that have come out and they're writing coverages online or via app. And they're indicated that they're using artificial intelligence or machine learning to help them to determine potential fraud. Could you maybe explain to our listeners how artificial intelligence and machine learning could possibly assist in detecting potential fraud? Yeah, I mean, artificial intelligence, machine learning that has been around that, that technology for over two decades. I mean, it's been used in many areas and it just started to kind of breach into insurance maybe a decade ago. And now it's common. Yeah, you know, Fred and I hear this at every single conference. And I think the application is really expanding. It started off, you know, we, we see it a lot in onboarding as well, learning how to onboard good customers and knowing what the risks are. But in a fraud world, it really comes down to applying it, looking to predict that risk. That really is the core of what those platforms do. And what they're what we do with those is we design those or they are designed. So you insert the platform, you know, you purchase whatever it is, that software module that, that works. But then the whole key is to work within with that company, with that agency to create that. What is that system going to look for? It's not a plug and play. You don't just plug it in. It's not like a Nintendo and you start playing. You actually have to put work into telling that machine what to look for in fraud. You know, so for example, you know, we, we could predict or try to predict per se what claim it was insured or what claim I should say has a high propensity to have an attorney involved due to certain factors. And we know that having attorneys involved in claims, you know, increases litigation, increases this costs, claim costs, and eventually bottom line. So it behooves us to figure, you know, figure that out, but also predicting based on certain factors of the profile of that specific person. Do they have certain economic background? Do they have certain prior history in other areas or even a criminal background, you know, linking third party data into those platforms? And that's really the key. We're seeing the applications expand almost on a daily basis, but really where the hits focus on are, you know, as Fred had mentioned, those those relationships, you know, predicting what attorney, body shop, outsourced vendor, a roofing company, contracting company, maybe has a higher propensity to become involved in a large scale ring. Because that's where the big hits are in fraud is those those big, you know, those big cases that, that do start small, you know, with small exaggerations and then grow. So with those AI platforms, they look to predict that ahead of time before they even happen, identify those and then, you know, protocols can be developed uh, to try to avoid that risk. Yeah, George, there was a recent article or, you know, something on social media, on Twitter or something along those lines. It was this insurance company that's named after a nice, refreshing summer drink. <laughs> uh, yeah, know that one. Not to name any, name. but they had posted that they were using artificial intelligence to obtain facial recognition and facial gestures to determine if fraud was being committed. Somebody posted that. And right away, they started getting bad publicity and it was immediately taken down and they had to reiterate what they meant by that was, you know, they're, they're trying, instead of trying to find the facial expressions to determine if, you know, he's speaking differently or something along those lines, voice recognition, they wanted to get fraud from that. Well, that raised a big stink in the industry. And they came back and they basically said, no, 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 we just, we're just taking the video of you to make sure you are the same person that took out the policy. So that artificial intelligence went down the garbage real quick. <laughs> But but I think about that. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, you know, we talk about body language and things of that nature. Couldn't you ascertain something from that from AI if you were doing that via video? 
Well, I don't think it came across right, but of course there is. And a lot of people are well-trained in that, you know, when you're with the FBI analysts and people that are looking at criminal murders and all these serial killers and stuff. Yes, body language, you know, you can learn that. You can tell when somebody's deceptive, what they're doing with their hands. They're rubbing the sweat off their forehead. They're itching the back of their neck. There's a lot of indicators as investigators. You know, now does that transpire to artificial intelligence? Do they recognize that as well? God knows where we're going to be with this. (laughs) That's a good point. I think there was a 60 Minutes uh, article a while back, a couple of years back that the Chinese were showing where they were using facial recognition to determine people as you're going through the airport and pulling that data off. And it's, you know, as we move forward, there, there are a lot of things going on in that AI world. But, but I think we get back to that human factor, right? And the analysis and the detection of that data that's created, I think it's still that human element. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. We tell even the greatest developers that are working in this industry, you know, your tool is great. Your technology is great. But all it's doing is building us better information for our investigators to actually physically look at, you know, on serious cases. You still need that human intervention. Just don't see the industry going away from from the human side of things here. Yeah. So what what do you think motivates people to commit fraud? I mean, we we talk about this. uh, What is the motivation? Mike, you want to take this? You have that great book on this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, th- yeah. I devoted uh, actually my dissertation too. So yeah, this is unfortunately or fortunately, uh, you know, known topic for me. And I think oh, that's you know, one of the interesting things about the yeah, one of the interesting things, George, about this is uh, find that that the white collar, you know, the insurance fraudster, that is the, the ones that agents will be focused on. You know, they're traditionally more cognitive than other criminals. So what that means is that they have the the ability to choose between right and wrong. So they can make a conscious decision. Now, what happens is when we follow that path, they can make a conscious decision. When we see it environment, such as insurance fraud, which has very low, you know, it's not a risky endeavor. So it's very high reward, very low risk. It draws the element in. So they actually take a, you know, make a, a conscious choice to engage. Now, what we see is we see two types of fraud, mainly that we bucketed most fraudsters into. One is the very contrived, organized. These are where you have those, those organized groups. You have a lot of organized crime. You have international groups behind these that really drive, focus their efforts on certain insurance companies, on certain agents. That's kind of one way. And there's a whole different strategy for those folks. But in my opinion, so companies actually, you know, they do a pretty good job at that, in my opinion, because they do have major case units there. They could come on the radar a little quicker. But in my opinion, the biggest pain points are those that don't go into a claim or a policy thinking that they're going to commit fraud. This is what I see a lot and what my research has shown that really a matter of opportunity. And I would say I've probably interviewed over 200, 300 convicted insurance fraudsters in, in my career. And they almost all started with that opportunity. You know, whether a check was made out wrong and they cashed it, whether they realized how easy it was, whether someone told them to pad a deductible or hold misrepresent certain information on a policy. And then that starts small and they realize how easy it was. And then that continues on. And when you look at the stats, it's very disturbing. And that's really where the agents can come in because, you know, they can, sure, those opportunities aren't there in tightening those policies up, making sure those right questions are asked up front on a policy or a claim report, because that's really where the opportunity comes. So the motivation is twofold, you know, in those organized cases, it's more of a push factor, just monetary, a lot of theories that go by behind that. I could talk for two hours on that. <laughs> but for the other end is the opportunity, you know, and that's really a second approach. And that really is more of a draw because they don't go into a claim thinking about it. It's just more, it kind of unfolds for them. Small things, of course, in the insurance industry as you're dealing with claims, whether it's deductibles or 
other things that might come up that people could easily, you know, make a statement and, and gain a little bit of extra money. So, you know, we have to think through that. I know the adjusters have to be very careful with that as well. Now, I want to loop back for just a second on the cyber piece. And I'm just thinking about social media. And today, you know, I've had a couple of uh, friends of mine that have been hit with some scams uh, through social media. But tell us a little bit, of how does social media play in the fraud industry? What, what are these individuals using? using social media for to defraud people? First off, social media is a great tool, as we say, for investigators to use to obviously look into investigations and find out about somebody's life. But at the same point, the fraudsters are learning that information about us as well. They could particularly steal your identity. Doing a social media search, you can find so much out about a person. And if it's not you doing it, it's your spouse, it's your children, it's somebody else putting information out there on social media that these people can gather just as we do as investigators and learn a lot about a person. And it goes from stolen identity to identity theft, as we call it, to doctors getting their information stolen and enough information for the fraudsters to start filing claims to the insurance company under this doctor's Medicaid number and so forth. So, it, you know, we love social media. We get to see what our relatives are doing, but it's a dangerous tool out there. And Mike works a lot with the social media, so I'll let him take over from here. Yeah, no, Fred, you hit on all the major points. You know, we can use we can use social media, like Fred mentioned, as an investigative tool. We're, we're you know, we're pretty good at that. And there's, there's platforms and things that we can tag into. But it also brings great threat because there's that fine line. We know that, especially agents that they're looking to build out their business, right? They have to be out there. You, know, you can't be found in a garage. You know, it's the old business thing. You have to be out there promoting yourself and marketing and getting your information in the world. Well, every piece of information you put out there is a potential vulnerability because scammers can grab it, can focus on that, can um, use that for identity theft and, and many other areas. And one of the things we see, you know, I saw a recent study last quarter which revealed that they did an independent study on Facebook postings. They looked at 1.2 billion Facebook postings. And out of those, believe it or not, the statistic blew me away. 53%, 53% were fake accounts that were brand new. Oh were fake scam that, accounts. Yeah, of all the new accounts that came in, it was unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah half were fake. So, and really you say, okay, well, what's the reason for that? Are these people, you know, catfishing for dates and things? And yeah, there's, there are a few like that, but a, most of them are to gain personal information on you because you can gain enough information. I mean, Fred and I have many cases we could talk about. I mean, one of the, there was a big one about five years ago in Arizona. And what a woman did was she filed false tax returns, but she was able to get enough information from people's social media postings to call them, to make them, and then to basically act as an imposter from the IRS because they had enough personal information they found and gave them enough information to then file a, a fake tax return. And she collected over half a million dollars. And if you think of, as George, Fred, you both know, think of the amount of information that agents process right? From insurers. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Uh, who's in the house, the vehicles, the ages, the it's unbelievable. I mean, with that information the agents have, it. I mean, fraudsters could either capitalize on that and get accounts themselves, or secondly, which Fred and I know, they could sell that on the black market. It's very valuable. And there is a market for that. So, so you know, social media is a tool. Yes, it's a great investigative tool. But secondly, it, it really creates massive vulnerabilities, especially, again, an agent looking to just promote themselves and their business. You know, they have to, you know, have to walk that basically, because it can be a big vulnerability. Yeah, I think that takes me to another area as we're talking about agencies and just people in general is really training, cybersecurity employee training and knowledge that if somebody's calling to ask about specific things or wiring money or whatever, you should really give that a second thought. 
and really start training employees to be on the lookout for this information. So what are your thoughts on employee training as a first line of defense? We do that, as you mentioned in my opening there, George, that I train all over the world and Michael does too. And it's teaching people what fraud looks like. And when we say what it looks like is, you know, what are the indicators that are coming in that, you know, what does a staged automobile accident scenario look like? Multiple passengers, multiple cars, what is it? It's just educating, again, pretty much the front line. And when we say the front line, that's from the agents to their office staff, to the adjusters, the call center, you know, when they're taking the initial calls, they hear the same repetitive stuff and it starts to get in their head that they're looking or, you know, they recall this training where this is an indicator. Oh my gosh, it's constant training. And for the adjusters, 17 states require annual fraud training every single year. And it's because fraud is changing so much. Yes, we're still seeing the same frauds from 30 years ago, 25 years ago. You still have vehicles disappearing, owner give-ups, as we call them, that they're getting rid of the vehicle because fuel's too much money or they can't afford it, they're out of work, whatever it may be. Frauds are still occurring for the same reason and same things, but the motives of how they're doing it change, and we have to keep everybody updated on that. And training and education is the only way of doing that, is keeping it out there in front of everybody. You know, out of sight, out of mind is exactly what happens. So we got to keep it in front of everyone to recognize it. Yeah, I would have to agree. And, and George as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to Fred. I mean, this is what Fred has been doing for, for 20 years. I mean, and, and this is what his business is built on is, is just right. Educating, you know, we, we kind of, we call it educate to elevate awareness. I mean, this is what, this is what we do, you know, because, you know, as Fred had identified, this is an area where, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, we wouldn't expect agent or frontline claims or loss report taker to keep updated on the latest fraud. That's not their, that's not their role. Their role is to just bring in business, get, you know, make their customers happy. That's great. I mean, but to rely on those experts that are dealing with this every single day are in the weeds that know those trends, know what to look for because they are there. They target many examples that we have that are cases that I've worked where it's come right down to, you know, the frontline loss report taker, you know, just kind of, you know, maybe seeing something that that could have been seen. And, you know, we we used to call it when I, when I actually worked in an insurance company as a SIU director, we used to call, we used to do training for the claim folks and the agents. And we would call it the post-training referral spike because like the day, and Federal probably tested this too, after we would do training, the referral rate would, would increase within the next days and even weeks. And it wasn't like, you know, new cases were found. These were existing cases, but we just created that awareness of it. And these were existing cases, but they had those aha moments. Oh my God, wow, that's why this happened or that happened. And then it's on those referrals. So education, in my opinion, is one of the most, you know, beneficial lines of defense, you know, that, that are there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think especially from, from my experience on the cybersecurity side, that education with the staff and training the staff on what to look for on some of these things is crucial and can help prevent a potential data breach or fraud occurring within the agency. So just for a moment, let's take a moment and and I'm going to ask a question here talking about to our listeners, let them think about this for a second. What do you think the percentage of people who find USB memory stick laying in the parking lot would take it back to their computer and insert it into their computer to see what's on it? So just (laughs) think about that for a second. What do you think the percentage is? And, and, and Mike, I'm going to let you answer this because I think you know where this question came from. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, this the USB stick test, uh, it, you know, it goes back to, you know, social engineering, which is, is unfortunately the weakest link. You can invest millions and billions of dollars, seen it hundreds of times in a program, but it's really the USB stick being inserted that is the weak link. And that's how the fraudsters get into it. We could talk about some specific cases, but, but yeah, I mean, it's upwards of 50% or more. Now, my independent study shows it probably close to 75, even that, 80%. That's what I'm um, thinking. 75 to 80%. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And it's and so we we did an independent study. Actually, it was an insurance company that was out in the Nordic. This was about five years ago, and I consulted with them on this. And they they had a humongous data breach just from social engineering from a employee that actually was a phishing campaign. So it wasn't a USB stick, but it was a phishing campaign. They almost went bankrupt. We went in. We did all this training on education. The whole, we did everything we could. We decided then to test them. We did a USB stick test. We sent it to their office to two thousand of their employees, unmarked envelope, unmarked. USB. And do you know, even after knowing that their company almost went bankrupt, 50% still put that USB stick <laughs> in their laptop. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, because it's, 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 it's incredible. It's, it speaks it's to that piece of us. We, we just have to know. We just have to know what's there. We, we just got to check it. We've, we've got to put it in just see. Right. Okay. It, yeah, it, yeah it, I, I must read Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones syndrome, we call it. You, you always have to, you want to see what's in the box, you know, what's, what's there, you know. So, oh, it's, it's yeah. go ahead, Brent. Yeah, it's every day. Similar, similar instances like that happen. I get them every day. I, I mean, I try to put up spam blockers and stuff like that. But it's you know emails that your uh, credit card was charged today uh, six hundred for your new subscription, and click here if you have a complaint or want to cancel. And it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, I have to deal with my eighty-six-year-old mother all the time saying somebody has my bank account. Well, mom. <laughs> Where'd it come from? It came from Chase. Well, you don't have a Chase account. I know I have a SunTrust. So what is this? <laughs> you know, and that's the problem. I mean, they're just getting the elderly. They're getting everybody young and old now. I mean, I hope my kids have been educated enough not to click on this in college, but you know, I just got to keep them aware of this. It's amazing. And you think about these, especially these. around the, the holiday season when things are being shipped, you always get those messages in your, your packages, whatever, click here to track your package. And people don't think, and they go to click that link before they even check to see if the link is actually the correct. Yeah. So yeah, it's an ongoing process that is I mean, it's scary what can happen to individuals, you know, happen to all of us. I'm in the fraud industry and it's uh I try to keep aware of it, but I can't keep up with it. Yeah, now I think I read somewhere yeah. From one of you gentlemen, we're talking about uh, the vacation issue with employees. And if, if somebody's not taking vacation, what kind of indicator does that throw out there? And I've had some some experience with some, here again, some good uh, friends of mine that have run into this myself. Uh, would one of you like to kind of cover that particular topic? Yeah, I can I can cover that. I, I know that was a, a, a big topic that we focus on a lot when we're developing uh, protocols, you know, internal internal fraud protocols. Because what we find is that that is, that is actually one of the big indicators is an employee that does not take vacation. The reason being, because some of the biggest frauds are uncovered and revealed when a employee, fraudulent or unscrupulous employee, I should say, is not at their desk. You know, they're on vacation, they're out of the office, someone calls in. Actually, the very first case, when I was still a claim trainee back early on, it, was all, it actually was a good result. It had a, a state arrest out of this, but a, a fellow employee was found guilty of internal fraud. And that's actually how they found him. He took a, a week-long vacation because he was making so much money frauding the company. He had to spend some of it, so he, he decided he had to take a week-long vacation. And what happened is somebody called, a bank called, looking to verify a check that he had written. Real long story short, what he, what he had been doing is he had been fabricating claims and adding claimants onto legitimate claims and then making checks, you know, bodily injury checks and, and et cetera. It was very contrived. He did a very good job, actually, of setting up different accounts and different names. He was basically skimming off all of these these different claims, but it happened because he wasn't there. Um, so that's a big flag. And I know, like George, when you asked about okay, how can we help predict fraud? That is actually a good way, but you know, to use technology because what we can do is we can actually look and access certain, let's say, HR systems or PTO programs, and most of those are on, online now, and just determine, hey, who's not taking vacation? So that's actually a good way to use technology as a 
safety net, including, you know, with that human component. Right. And I think, you know, from an owner perspective, as you look back at that, whatever business you may be in, you may think, oh, this individual is really working hard. They're never taking any time off. And wow, I couldn't, couldn't do without them. But it has been, and I've seen it myself and other issues where those people who don't take vacation, they could be the ones that are you know skimming off the top or have some little system going. They don't want to take vacation because they don't want anybody to find out what they're doing. Exactly. Another flag that goes along with that, and there's an agency out on the West Coast that I'm working with now. And unfortunately, they were scammed by the, the owner of the agency, scammed by a 15-year employee that he had kind of as the office manager. And he's having a really hard time getting this prosecuted. And, and unfortunately, it's not going to end well, I don't think, for him. But one of the flags for her was, right, she one, never took vacations. And number two, uh, she always preferred to deal with a lot of her, a lot of the transactions via paper. One of the reasons why is paper transactions are harder to track, especially these days. If it's electronic, you know, we, we can kind of, you know, we know through routing numbers and bank systems that we can subpoena records. But when it's paper, it's a lot harder. You know, the old school paper check and using ledgers and things like that. It's not easy to track that and even, you know, grab those from an evidentiary standpoint. Um, so that's another flag as well. If, you know, if you have any employees or someone that prefers to deal in paper more, uh, that could also be a flag to an agent. Yeah, and we do. I'm sure we do have a lot of agents out there that have people in their office that prefer paper. So that's something to think about. So, guys, as we kind of wrap up on our discussion today, give it back. And Fred, I'm going to go with you first. What are some of the things you'd like to just say to our listeners as it pertains to fraud? Give you a few minutes to just talk about that. And, Mike, I'll come back to you in just a second. So, Fred, I'll let you take that. Yeah, I've spoken to many agents at some of the seminars and conferences, you know, pre-COVID, I should say. It's always been about the recognition of it. How do we recognize it? And what do we do when we do have suspicions of this? And what we like to tell you, tell the agents and their staffs is to, you know, get familiar with the processes that the companies that you're writing business for. Introduce yourself to their fraud department. Get friendly with their, you know, fraud department. Meet them for lunch if they're local in the area and sit down over a cup of coffee and learn what's going on in the area from these individuals. Now, not all companies have localized investigators, but still to pick up the phone, always been the biggest thing when I do speak at a conference is, you know, I had this case, but nobody wanted to talk to me. I didn't know where to go with it. People just said, oh, don't worry about it. And we don't want that to happen, but the agents were getting frustrated that, well, I told somebody about this, but nothing happened. We paid the claim. My loss ratio, you know, it was a fraudulent claim. It comes back on me because I really didn't know where to go with it. So getting to know every major insurance company, and pretty much by law, every insurance company has to have somebody on staff as an investigative unit representation. Once you get to know those individuals, you know, you can shoot them an email directly. Hey, can you take a look at this? Something doesn't feel right. I think that's the biggest takeaway that after, after I speak is that many people want to do this and want to refer and want to save their loss ratios and then so forth and write good business. But, you know, they just didn't know where to go. So finding the special investigation unit within the insurance companies and familiarizing yourself with those individuals or your localized investigator will go a long way. Wonderful. We appreciate that. Mike, what about you? Yeah, and I think, you know, my sentiments are very close to to Fred's as well. And I know, you know, from the agents, we, we know that they have that different perspective. They're there to drive business, build build the book and, and get the premiums coming in. And I think sometimes fraud uh, can seem uh, maybe a little bit daunting, you know, trying to keep up with the, the new trends and what's going on and then how to refer things. And it, it could be complicated and are police going to get involved? I mean, it can, it can really seem overwhelming, you know, from a business development standpoint. But I think knowing, you know, a message to the agents is that hope actually is there. There. I mean, again, from a training perspective, this is what, what Fred and I do. We have tons of things in our minds and on our websites and things that we love to share and actually help the agents just kind of know, uh, you know, what, what's coming in and what's not and what to look for. 
you know, how, how to identify those up front. So use those, if possible, you know, use those technology pieces that are available because we do find, I mean, even though they, you know, there is a cost to those, they, you know, they do actually assist down the road. They don't have to be, you know, these multi-million dollar software packages. It could simply be really, you know, utilizing, you know, access in Excel or whatever, you know, whatever that, that agent's using, but, but, you know, looking for those outliers and data. So, you know, I think with those multiple approaches, what an agent will find is that they're actually writing good business, you know, like their, their loss ratios are going to look good. Their profitability is going to look good because they're writing good business. Because as we know, you know, getting them off the books down the road is extremely expensive, you know, affects the bottom line of the insurance company and trickles eventually back down to the agent. But again, you know, the message is that there is, there are resources out there for, for a lot of agents to fall back on, uh, you know, as, uh, as Fred and I know. Yeah. And we greatly appreciate both of you gentlemen being here on this podcast and for our listeners to to understand a little bit more about fraud and to know that both of you are a great resource in the time that we spent together getting ready for this podcast. It's great to meet both of you and to know that we have these exceptional resources out there for people to go to to get information on how to prevent fraud and what to look for in fraud. So Fred Wharton and Dr. Mike Skiba and as Dr. Fraud, we greatly appreciate you being with us today on this podcast and, and speaking about this very valuable topic for our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, George. Thank you, George.